The founding documents for this country are amazing and wonderful. Um, this is something that must always be treasured because if people deny things with their mouths and their actions, it's written. It's the written word that you can base your hopes on. And that's something that keeps us together as a country, no matter what we may think of people or what uh, people try to change, those documents are very, very important. And so with this march, we were marching on that written word. This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harvin. It's ingrained in America's memory. 200,000 people converge on the nation's capital to rally for civil rights. They come by train, they come by bus and by air. They come from the north, the south, the east and west. They come united in one cause, to urge Congress to pass a civil rights bill to end forever the blight of racial inequity. In 1963, over 200,000 people came to Washington to march for the civil and economic rights of African Americans. It was the backdrop to one of the most famous speeches in history, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. At that point, it was the largest political march the nation had ever seen, and it was a turning point in the civil rights movement, responsible for important policy changes, such as outlawing discrimination based on race, religion, or sex. And for the many faces in the crowd that day, it changed them forever. It was a day that stopped history. I mean, you know, you had to have been there to have experienced it. We can talk about it, uh, we can think about it, but we'll never be able to tell you what that day was like. You had to have been there. Hi, my name is Patricia Tyson. I should say Patricia Ann Tyson. My mother always said to me, use your middle name. I am age 74, and I'm a native Washingtonian. I am Teresa Laverne Saxton, maiden name Tyson, and I am 72 years old. Teresa Saxton and Pat Tyson are sisters, and even though they are both in their 70s, they still remember their parents' advice, which is fitting for this podcast. They remember their childhood well, in D.C. during segregation. Their schools, restaurants, churches, everything was built around separation. The type of racism the Tyson sisters experienced wasn't overt like in the South. They endured the type of racism that didn't need signs or police. It was something so deep within society. It was second nature. I remember we went to a parade, uh, my dad and groups participated in the Memorial Day Parade uh, very prominently. And I remember we were, we were teenagers, young teenagers, but one particular year when the parade was over, my mother said we could go to the drugstore and get something cold to drink. So we were excited because that didn't happen for us very often. So we went in the drugstore there in Rockville and we sat down at the counter because there were seats and people were sitting and we sat down to get our cold drink. 
And, you know, my mother said, no, you know, you can't sit there. So she, you know, quietly just told us. And, of course, we got up and we went down to the end of the counter where you come into the the drugstore and we waited and they gave us our drinks and then we went outside and she didn't make an issue out of it. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, why couldn't we sit there? There were seats. Why couldn't we sit there and have our soda in the drugstore? And here my dad had, you know, our church choir had just sung in the program and he had marched in it, you know, and everybody was applauding and everything. So why couldn't we sit there and have our drinks? In the 1900s, D.C. underwent a significant demographic shift. More federal jobs were becoming available, and African Americans came into town to fill them. As the sisters grew into young adults, they both got government jobs and experienced the injustices that stemmed from the top. I remember when I started working with the federal government in 63, the Kennedy administration, before then, I was told by African-Americans who worked at the Justice Department that before Robert Kennedy became Attorney General, all of the blacks were working in the basement, in the mailroom. People who had law degrees couldn't be hired as attorneys at the Justice Department. And it was that kind of thing that I think helped us to understand that We needed to get involved and bring attention to some of the things that were going on. We were kind of the generation that the the real baton was passed to. And it was really our job to take advantage of the sacrifices that had been made on our behalf and make good on them and to also Um, move forward so that things would be even better for our children. And if this wasn't motivation enough, the sisters couldn't ignore the violence they were seeing around the nation. People were dying. People were getting killed. But they were still going south. And I mean, for us to see it on TV, if we saw someone who was just beaten or water hosed or something like that, that was what made the news. But, you know, the the fact of the matter was that we had to come to understand that a lot of sacrifices that people endured in the South, maybe we didn't have them in the North. The civil rights movement that started in the South was more or less an awakening for us. It was a time when, what are you going to do? You're going to sit there and watch going to let everybody else do what should be done. You were brought up to know what is right and what is wrong. It also meant when the march was on the horizon, telling their white government bosses they were part of the movement. The first day of annual leave that I took was to participate in the March on Washington. And all of my superiors in the office were Caucasian. And they said, oh, you are so smart. They said, it's going to be a mess downtown. They're going to be, you know, traffic and this and that and so forth. So you are really smart to take off that day. And I said, well, I'm going to the march. (laughs) And they looked at me, you know, in disbelief because they thought, why would anyone want to come downtown and be in a 
crowd of people. There had never been anything like that in this city before, and people did not know what to expect. That many people, who knows, you know, what's going to happen. My girlfriend and I dressed, as did a number of people who took buses from wherever they came to. They came dressed in their suits and ties and their dresses and their heels, their Sunday best. There were people who just dressed casually as well, but it was that important to us. Unfortunately for those wearing their Sunday's best, August 28th was an especially hot day. There were people that were stretched out. They were just, the heat had gotten them. And they were stretched out on the lawn and and their signs were down and they weren't doing much of anything. And and, and the speakers were up there speaking and, and every once in a while they'd say, <laughs> And the poor folks, they had been knocked out. But when Martin Luther King came, everybody stood up and sat up and... He started his speech, and I tell you, the cloud became electrified. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. I thought, oh my goodness. I enjoyed the speaker before. That was the one I heard before. But when he came, what he said just cemented the mission that we were all on. Knowing that it wasn't over, knowing that we had a long way to go, he energized us so much. We all went back standing up straight, ready to go, saying, you know, this is our time. It was one of those things wherein It's something down inside of you could not be denied. Something inside of you pulled out the best in you. What he was doing was really pulling the best out of you for life. That day gave everybody there a vision not only of what the civil rights of of a person means no matter which country they come from and where they live or what they do, but it also meant that we were going to have to reach out to other people that we didn't know. It gave everybody a sense of, now you've got to have content of character. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. You know, when he came to that part of the speech, that nailed it right there. It wasn't what you looked like, it wasn't what you had, it was what you did. It meant for me that I had to go farther than looking for my friends in my own race. That meant I had to reach out to other people. Um, They had to know me. I had to know them. And I'm not saying that didn't happen before the march, but I'm saying 
the march made it uh, evident that that was something we had to do. While they were hearing Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, they were also hearing stories from other marchers, people who were dealing with injustices all over the nation. The highlight of the day was meeting so many people from so many parts of the country. It was just inspiring to meet some of the people who actually lived in the cities that had to endure some of the things. Because for them, they were going to go back after the march was over and whatever jobs they didn't have, you know, or whatever difficulties they faced in going to stores and so forth, uh, that type of thing was still going to be a part of their lives. Whereas the next day, I could just go back to my good government job and my life would go on. As they were putting faces and personal stories to the cause, they learned being part of the movement meant they were representing this group, and they took the responsibility seriously. It was just an awakening that from now on, I stand for everybody in this crowd, wherever I am, and I will not embarrass them. I will stand, I will do what I can, but I will not embarrass them, and we're going to go forward. And a big part of that responsibility was keeping King's values of nonviolence, which the sisters held dear. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence again and again. We must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. One of the things that Martin Luther King stressed was that he would never lower his standards to violence. And we liked that very much. And if we'd met someone that had decided they wanted to do something different from that model, uh, we would not have worked with them. I think that's the thing that helped a whole lot. If it had been a violent thing, we would never have gotten involved in something like that because our parents didn't raise us for something like that. They raised us to be able to think for ourselves, first of all, and then to do what was necessary to make something better. We were always striving to make something better and to be better was the most important thing because my mother often said to us that things are not going to be probably as you would like them to be. And you have got to be better than a Caucasian person. You've just got to be, you've got to be twice as good to even get their attention. And once you do that, then you can work to do something that makes a difference. Today, the civil rights movement is reimagined in Black Lives Matter. We are tired. We are fed up. We are fed up. After George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old African-American high school student, the group organized out of a need to protest. There are some differences between the two movements. One is how the protests are organized. Today, marches can be set up in a matter of days online. It can happen all over the nation. And of course, Black Lives Matter spawned from a Twitter hashtag call to action. But the sisters say the two movements are actually addressing many of the same issues. 
many of the things that are happening, particularly in the black communities, are not new things. It's just that people with cell phones have captured uh, police brutalizing someone for a traffic stop or for a minor offense and it escalating to a point of where the person may lose their lives. But those kinds of things are not new to the black community. There's always been a different set of rules or, you know, certain standards or certain things that were particularly in the black community than there were in white communities. Certain things, you know, when they say the talk that parents have with their children, you were always taught that when you go out, you know, and there are certain things that you need to be careful of if pulled over by the police. You know, this is what you need to say. This is what you need to do. That None of that is new. But I think what's happened is that wherein we understood that there were these different standards. There's a feeling that, oh, we've progressed so far in this country that there's no racial prejudice. There's no problem. There are no issues. People don't really realize that, yeah, they're still there. You don't see them as much, but they're still there. But still, Black Lives Matter has been at odds with the 60s civil rights. It's been described as not your grandfather's movement. The sisters see the passion in the Black Lives Matter movement, but want to see it develop further. The Black Lives Matter movement is a very important movement. However, I think it's structured wrong. It doesn't have any structure. It's just people saying Black Lives Matter. You have to have a framework that you're working within that is headed towards some kind of goal. There's no real goal here. It's just stop the police from shooting a young black men. I don't think that that is going to be accomplished the way it is happening now. All it does is get attention. And then people say, well, there are those lawbreakers. You know, we need to put them in prison or we need to do something to uh, rein them in. And then a lot of the services or the businesses or things that where people were helpful to them, they're no longer there. So it's kind of like there's that painful time again of how is it that we best deal with this situation to bring about change? It's not going to happen overnight. And in this day of instant foods and instant communications, things happen instantly. So people expect solutions will be found instantly. It doesn't happen that way. The baton passed from one generation to the next is a tricky one. When the sisters began their work in the civil rights movement, they felt a responsibility to the past and to the future. They focused on moving forward, but with guidance from the people who got them there. And so the sisters would like to bridge that gap between their own work and the movement they see going forward. It's hard for young people to listen to older people and people that really have been through the struggle. And I think those who want to be in this movement have got to 
bring in elders and they've got to listen and work together. The civil rights movement came about when young people, they got involved, they were under the tutelage of older folks. They stuck with what the folks told them to do. But our society now has so many factions. The Black Lives Movement is, in a way, is kind of mumbled. Some people understand what they're saying. Others just see the destruction along the path. The sisters know the civil rights movement they were involved in can't happen again. The country has changed so much since 1963 and Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. And it will keep changing. The thing about it is you have to realize, first of all, i got a problem and I need to get over it. And then start talking, start building uh, coalitions or whatever to say, hey, you know, our next generation can't come up like this. We've got to change this thing because we're either going to die together or we're going to live together. Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date on all our episodes. Check out my Twitter, at Michelle Harvin, to find all the links and to see some cool extra stuff like pictures and videos of our incredible storytellers. Or you can go to LegacyThePodcast.com to see all that and more. Logo design by Elise Harvin, tech by Chris Herbert, and thanks to everyone who has helped in one way or another. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune in next week. You don't want to miss it.